So I'm, uh, you are all blessed with the opportunity that I'm going to give a sermon on Daniel 5. So uh, let me pray. Um, God, I thank you so much uh, for your word and for this confusing book called Daniel. And I do ask God that you'll help me, give me the right words to speak, to encourage and challenge our community um, regarding this text. I ask this in Yeshua's name. All right, Daniel chapter 5 is found on page 805. Page 805. So, um, comparing last week to this week, we're going to find that there seems to be a discrepancy between how God provides grace to some people, but to others, He judges completely. And we're going to explore this. I, I actually, I named, oh, it's too small, but I named the, the sermon, I guess, for myself, Diverging uh, Forgiveness and Faith. Because those are kind of the two ideas that we'll, we'll talk about. I'm going to introduce them now, and then we'll talk about them after we go through the chapter. But we're going to explore how God is just in his treatment of Belshazzar in comparison with what he did with Nebuchadnezzar. Because God is still just and merciful. And we should regularly thank God for sustaining us throughout our lives and through each moment of our day. But as I said, the other thing we're going to think about is God is really in complete control. When each one of us has our time, and it is our time to die, as shown here with Belshazzar's time being up, it, he's still in control. We don't know when it is our time, right? None of us know when, when we're going to die. Uh, and we don't know when Messiah will return. But one thing we do know is, again, that God is in control. So that's the idea of faith in this chapter. And in addition to taking comfort in the fact that God is in control, and we don't know uh, anything about time, we should really use that, uh, use that knowledge of God is in control to further exemplify his character as our response to not knowing um, things. So... Let's take a look. We're going to begin with Daniel chapter 5, and we're going to read a couple verses. I'll read them, of course, out loud, but follow, please follow along with me. Uh, Daniel chapter 5, starting in verse 1. King Belshazzar had a great feast for a thousand of his nobles and was drinking wine in front of the thousand. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he issued an order to bring in the gold and silver vessels that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his concerts, and his concubines could drink from them. So they brought the gold vessels that were taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, consorts and concubines, drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods made of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Okay. Where are we in time? If you've been following along with these uh, uh, studies that we've done each week, we've been reviewing a chapter in Daniel, it might be confusing, because honestly, this doesn't seem to fit with what's going on. Uh, and also, who is Belshazzar, honestly? So uh, if you can, go to the next slide, uh, Justice. So let me do a quick little recap. These are First, I'm going to point out something. These numbers are highly debated. So in various scholars have different opinions about when uh, Jerusalem, the city, was first sieged, when it was finally destroyed, when Zedekiah was, uh, was kicked out of his kingdom, 
and when Cyrus issued his decree. It's very debated, so this is just one view, okay? And I want to make sure that's understood, because these numbers are not like, you know, not, I'm not claiming that these are 100% right. I'm just trying to point out some things for us to consider, because I think it's helpful when we're understanding the context of what's here. Um, so in 605 BCE or so, uh, the Battle of Carchemish happened, and Daniel, well, that's when it's supposed that he was taken with the first exile from Jerusalem. He, and which implies that he was nobility, as uh, we talked about in Jan uh, Daniel 1. Daniel was nobility, and uh, they took uh, Daniel and made him um, an Enoch uh, to serve the king. Um, and yeah, so it's, it's kind of an honorable thing that he was taken from the first exile as opposed to the latter exiles. But in 597, uh, it's understood that that's when he like really like took Jehoiakim, when King Nebuchadnezzar took, if, you, if you're familiar with the text, he took the, the right king, David's descendant, and removed him from the throne and brought him to Babylon. Okay? And he instilled, uh, he, sorry, he instituted, he put Zedekiah, uh, like his, I think the king's uncle, uh, in charge of Jerusalem. Okay? So Zedekiah reigned from that time until about 586 when he like rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. And finally, after a year and a half siege, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem uh, and then uh, killed all of Zedekiah's sons in a terrible manner. And very important for us as Jewish people, the first temple was destroyed. Our story is taking place a little bit later uh, in 539 B.C. And just in case you're confused, because I got confused about this. Remember, B.C.E., those dates go uh, decreasing values for more recent time periods, just in case that's confusing. Uh, I always forget that. So we're taking place in 539 BCE. Uh, if you can go to the next slide, that'll be really great. Actually, uh, I even saw a date for this. So this is October 5th, 539 BCE. All right, that was Wikipedia, so I thought I'd just share that. So next question, who is Belshazzar? Oh, that's very small. I'm sorry. I should have thought about that when I made this. Um, so there's a couple of ideas about who this guy is. Uh, one idea is that it says he's the, that uh, Nebuchadnezzar was his father. Uh, and we know in the text that it's very common. Like, we refer to Abraham as our father, for example. And, you know, he's not, he wasn't actually our father. He was our great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, right? So that's the same idea. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the second, Nebuchadnezzar, is the guy that we read about in Daniel and in uh, other passages of the scripture. And he had a son named, one idea is he had a son named Abel Merodach, or Nabonidus, and his son is Belshazzar. So in case you're wondering who is this guy that we're going to talk about for the rest of the chapter, that's one understanding. Another understanding I saw is that actually he's, he's, uh, Belshazzar is really the nephew of Nebuchadnezzar. And so this is also debated amongst various sources and you know, commentary and, and uh, scholars. It's not really clear. It's, uh, it's established like you know, there's definitely writings that show that Belshazzar existed, and so that's not really debated. It's just who was he is the debated question. Um, and then there's, I have, you know, reasons for why people say what they say, but we'll, we'll skip ahead of that. So um, we'll leave that up, and I'm going to ask the next question, which is, why is Belshazzar partying? Why is he partying? Well, uh, historians have differing opinions about the war that was going on between the Persians, who just ganged up with the Medes and the Babylonian Empire, which was the established empire of the day. Um, Rashi quotes Josephon. Josephon, anyone know who that is? 
I'm not sure. Yeah? Uh, Hannah knows. Josephus. That's the, like, I guess the Aramaic term for him. But Josephus. Uh, and he explains the story of why Belshazzar was partying. So Belshazzar had just waged war with Darius uh, the Mede and Cyrus and was victorious in battle. And so they were so happy that they won this big battle. And they were celebrating, unaware that Darius had regathered the Medes and the, his troops for a quick and decisive victory. So that's why he's partying. At least that's, again, one understanding here. And of course, in the midst of this feast, they're all partying. The, the Medes return and waged war in the city and captured it. And we'll go into a little bit more detail, because uh, the next question that I, I want to propose to everyone, if we're recalling the text, what did Belshazzar do wrong? So, Tractate Megillah states that there were a number of kings who made a calculation of 70 years, trying to approximate when the Jews were going to be returned to Jerusalem. Uh, and they all came on to their own con conclusions and miscalculated. That maybe It's hard for us to appreciate this in our day and age, but Jeremiah was seen as a real prophet of God because he predicted that the, king, uh, that the Babylonian Empire was going to come in and crush the the Jews. He predicted it, and the Babylonians knew it. And we see this in the text uh, in, in the book of Jeremiah and how he's treated after he, after he is captured himself. The Babylonians saw him as a real serious figure, and they knew that he said 70 years and the Jewish people will return to Jerusalem. So, uh, one interpretation is that, and uh, from Tractate Megillah, which is a rabbinic source, is that Belshazzar had taken the years of Jeremiah that Babylon referred to, the 70 years, and he thought that the kingdom of Babylon would have 70 years. Not, he wasn't calculating it right. And so he started when Nebuchadnezzar began his first rule and counted 70 years, and nothing happened. Thus, he figured, that means the Jews were still in exile, and they were stuck, and Jeremiah was wrong. The kingdom, of, uh, the kingdom of Babylon would carry on, not to mention he just had this great victory. So he figured, my gods beat, God, beat Jeremiah's God. But of course, as, as we know, this was incorrect. Uh, it was, he was too early in his uh, prediction. Uh, and he also didn't realize that the Babylonian Empire uh, didn't need to be around in order for the Jewish people to still return. But more importantly than just simply that he was... Uh, uh, miscalculating, he was really showing contempt for God. He had won a battle that the Hebrews and their God had predicted would be his downfall. They, uh, the Jewish text is clear that, God, that uh, and we'll see later some sources, but that Babylon would be judged. And he thought, well, I won. And all the prophets say that I'm going to lose, and I won. So I'm obviously great. And so he decided he would mock the Jewish people and their God by using their sacred items for his own purposes. He did not need to take the Judean temple, uh, the sacred items for drinking. He had plenty of gold and plenty of silver. He didn't need it, but he did. And as I said, he was specifically demonstrating contempt towards the Jewish people by using their items of gold to praise that end of verse 4. It says, God's made of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone purposely put through, the, the verses are purposely put there to show the depreciation in value. And we're going to see that a couple times. The depreciation in value. They're worshiping things made of gold, 
while drinking out of a gold vessel. They're worshiping things made of wood while they're drinking out of a gold vessel. So let's continue. That's what he did wrong. And we're going to continue together. Verse 5. At that moment, at that very moment, the fingers of a human hand emerged and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand so that the king could see the back of the hand that was writing. The color drained from the king's face. His thoughts alarmed him. His hips gave way and his knees began knocking together. The king called loudly to summon the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. The king said to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain around his neck, and he, and he will have authority as a third ruler of the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the inscription nor tell the king what it meant. So we have the happening, right? We're familiar with this. The writing on the wall. And what is Belshazzar's reaction? Of course, he's absolutely terrified. His color changed. Thoughts betrayed him. I'm going to pull David Barker recommended the, KJ, the King James Version translation, which reads, the, loins of his, the joints of his loins were loosened. What does that mean? It literally means Belshazzar was so afraid that he defecated himself. The third, he is this great ruler of Babylon, and he is petrified with what he saw. So why is he mentioned the third ruler of the kingdom, perhaps? Well, as we saw, uh, he is the third ruler, uh, or he's the second ruler, and he can only grant power to someone as a third. Now, uh, one of the big questions here is, why couldn't anyone read or interpret? Maybe interpret we could understand, right? But if you were anybody in the time of Babylon, you could read Hebrew or Aramaic or whatever the script was. So this is a very hotly debated question, uh, and I'm not going to go into it, but if you want to know more, I'm happy to talk about it later. Uh, it's a very hotly debated question about why people couldn't read it. One way or another, though, uh, it's understood that God wanted Daniel to give the interpretation. So let's keep reading. Uh, verse 9. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the words of the king and his nobles, entered the banquet hall. Well, hold on. We're... Wait a second, this is confusing. She was already in the room, so who is this? Well, it's probably his mother, in case you're wondering. The queen spoke out and said, May the king live forever. Do not let your thoughts frighten you, or your face be so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the days of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods. So King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and diviners. This man, Daniel, who the king called Belshazzar, was found to have extraordinary spirit, knowledge, and insight for interpreting dreams, explaining riddles, and solving problems. Now let Daniel be summoned, and he will explain the interpretation. So, did the king really not know about Daniel? That seems ridiculous. We all, we all know the story, and we're going to get into this a little bit more, uh, after we finish reading through this. But I, I don't understand how he didn't know Daniel. Daniel is a big deal in the Babylonian kingdom. Uh, we all know that letter. Abe gave a great sermon last week talking about how the entire Babylonian empire and the outsiding of the empire, pretty much the known world, was aware of what happened to Nebuchadnezzar and how he went insane. And that Daniel was part of that letter. Everyone knew who Daniel was. So how could this king not know who Daniel was? Well, perhaps he did know, 
Um, perhaps, or perhaps maybe it's been like 20 years, maybe he forgot. Uh, remember that King Akashverosh forgot about Mordecai, right? So maybe it's just he's got other things on his mind. Not exactly sure. Uh, let's continue with verse 13. So Daniel was brought before the king. And the king said to Daniel, Are you Daniel, who is one of the captives of Judah that my father brought out from Judah? I have heard about you, how a spirit of the gods is in you, and how there has been found in your insight discernment and ex- in, in, in you insight discernment and extraordinary wisdom. Just now the wise men and diviners were brought before me to read this writing and to make its meaning known to me, but they were unable to declare its interpretation. However, I have heard about you, that you are able to provide interpretations and to solve difficult problems. Now, if you are able to read the writing and explain it to me its meaning, then you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain around your neck and have the authority to rule as a third in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, saying, You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and tell him its meaning. Okay. So, again, did he know Daniel? This is constantly the question. Did he know Daniel? Because it seems absurd that he wouldn't know Daniel. So some rabbis claim that really Belshazzar did know Daniel, and he was trying to praise Daniel, saying, Daniel, you're the great Daniel from the first exile. You're a noble, and you did all these important things. Now, you will help me, because you're so great, Daniel. When really he's going... Please, please help me. I have no idea what's going on. And of course, uh, in case you're wondering, purple is an important color because it was the color of nobility, which is why it's significant that he's offering purple. Uh, So let's keep reading. Verse 18. Your majesty, God most high, gave your father Nebuchadnezzar the kingdom, as well as greatness, glory, and splendor. Because of the grandeur that he bestowed on him, All the peoples, nations, and languages dreaded and feared him. He killed whomever he wanted, and he spared anyone he wanted. He raised up whomever he wished, and he humbled anyone he wished. But when his heart became haughty, and his spirit hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from among men, and his mind became like an animal. And his dwelling was was with the wild asses. He fell on grass like an ox, and his body was damp with the dew of heaven until he recognized that, that God Most High is sovereign over the realm of mankind and that he sets up over it whomever he wills. But you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart even though you knew all this. Instead, you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. You had the vessels of his house brought before you, and you and your nobles, your consorts and your concubines, have been drinking wine in them. You praise the gods made of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or or hear or understand. Yet you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your very breath and all your ways. Wow. So this is a great Shuva lecture, a call for repentance from Belshazzar. And he recalls his grandfather's history. God appointed Nebuchadnezzar and gave him great power. God did it, not Nebuchadnezzar. God did it. And then God humbled him. And Belshazzar 
already knew this. He did know this. And yet he did not humble his heart in spite of knowing this. In fact, he committed this sin where he's saying, I'm better than that God, the God that drove my father insane. It's insane for him to think that. So God sent the writing on the wall. And let's, uh, let's go to the next slide. Uh, this is the Hebrew and just transliteration for you to see. Uh, verse 24, it says, Therefore the hand was sent from him that wrote this inscription. Now this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, upharsin. This is the interpretation of the inscription. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Peris, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Okay, first I want to point out, that's probably not what it looked like, in case anyone's wondering. Hebrew has changed in the past like 4,000 years, so that's probably not what it looked like. But that's what Hebrew looks like now. Just I want to make sure that's clear. Mene, mene, tekelu parsin. Let me see here. Let's try to like break down that phrase. Literally, it translates to counted, counted, weighed, and divided. But it's got many meanings. And that's what's so fascinating about those four words. Mene literally means counted and finished simultaneously. Tekel. Tekel literally means weighed. Or it could also mean found wanting. But then you ask, found wanting of what? What was wanting? Rashi said, well, he was wanting of righteousness. After what he did, he was found wanting of righteousness. Then we have Peres. So Peres literally means divided. But it also, because there's, there weren't vowels when it was written, it could mean paras, which is the word for Persia. So Rashi explains that presat, the kingdom is broken up, and at the same time, upares, given to the Medes and Persians. It had a double meaning in that word. Daniel reads them as nouns, too, and I think that's important to point out, and then interprets them as verbs, uh, based on the root. So there's other ways to look at this. Go, uh, go to the next slide, if you, if you can, Justice. We have mene, which is the same root as mina. And mina means many shekels, okay? That's the top image. Many shekels. And then you have tekel. Tekel is the Aramaic form of the word shekel. So there's one. And then you have peres, the half shekel. Parsin is the plural. And it's worth less. So we have this, again, this depreciation in value in those words. Similar to what we talked about with the gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And also similar to what we saw with the dream. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream from, I think, chapter 3, right? The image and that he sets up, this depreciation in value. It's kind of like this interesting theme. So maybe we might ask, well, why two mene? He could have just said mene, tekel, ubarzin, right? That would work. I, honestly, it could just be poetic. But in Hebrew, or in the Bible, when someone, something said twice, it also is like double emphasis. It's actually meant to ensure that you know proper counting was happening. God really did weigh. And you shall surely lose your kingdom. No doubt. 
or another way to understand it too, as Belshazzar was counting in his head and deciding that God isn't really God. My gods are God. Because they messed up. I'm counting the days. I know the years. I got this figured out. As he was counting and deciding to sin, God was weighing and counting him and determining that he was wanting. Let's go to verse 29, and let's see the king's reaction to this. Then, at Belshazzar's command, they clothed Daniel with purple, put a chain of gold around his neck, and issued a proclamation about him that he would have the authority as the third ruler over the kingdom. On that very night, King Belshazzar of the Chaldeans was slain. The end. A lot, right? So, the king's reaction, is it minimal? He kept his word. It's not clear what was Belshazzar's mood, though, or fashion. Um, one interpretation is that Belshazzar knew who Daniel was, and he knew that Daniel was capable of praying and having his prayers answered for the decree to be averted. Remember Nebuchadnezzar got his decree, right? And Daniel, he was able to push it off by doing charitable acts. Belshazzar knew that Daniel was a righteous man at Sadiq, and he was trying to appease Daniel to pray for him. Whether that would have been effective or not, we don't know. And they wouldn't have much time. So perhaps Belshazzar even, we don't really know again, ignored Daniel. Maybe he's like, well, I already beat your God. I don't care what you say. Let's keep going. You know, maybe he did that. Because as, as, as far as he knew, he had already beaten the Persians and the Medes. It was over. Either way, the Nabonidus cylinder does confirm, which is a, like an artifact, by the way, an ancient artifact, confirms that Belshazzar was the chief officer of King Evel Merodach, and apparently the, uh, the king surrendered after Belshazzar died. It isn't clear how he died. The text doesn't tell us how he died. Uh, he could have been assassinated. They could have sent assassins into the city and gotten him. It could be that the city was overrun, but a couple of sources, uh, Babylonian Chronicle and the Cyrus Cylinder, state that it, the city was taken without a fight. Could be accidental death. There's a Midrashic story that, like, he was so terrified after what Daniel said, he's, like, telling his guards, whatever happens, don't let anyone come in. Even if they say they're the king, don't let them in. And they're like, okay, we won't let anyone come in, even if it's the king. And then for some reason, Belshazzar left his palace and tried to come back in. And they're like, who are you? He's like, I'm the king. And they're like, Hey, didn't our boss tell us to kill anyone if they said they were the king? I'm off with his head. So that's one, like, story. I don't, obviously, it's like a story. We don't know if that's true. So it could be an accident. But Josephus, Josephus actually claims something else. He claims that it was Daniel's prophecy that actually killed him. When Daniel, uh, Daniel's, everyone knew who Daniel was, as, as we said. So when Daniel said, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson, your kingdom has been split up. You've been weighed. Your king's going to be split up and given the Medes and the Persians. All of his entourage is like, oh my, Daniel's never been wrong before. This is really going to happen. What better time to get him than right now? And if we do it, the Medes and the Persians, maybe they'll spare us. So it's understood that maybe they killed him and killed his party so, so that they would be in good standing with the Medes and the Persians. We don't know what happened. And those are all just a couple in interpretations. But one way or another, it ended so suddenly. So let's review these themes that I mentioned at the beginning. Divergence and forgiveness and faith. First, divergence and forgiveness. Um, so this, this sermon is meant to be tethered with chapter 4. And these stories were purposely put together. Deliberately, we do not see an explanation of Evel Merodach, the king between Nebuchadnezzar and uh, 
and valves outside. And, and I think we should ask why. Um, we saw the descent of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, and now we're seeing Belshazzar's kingdom fall. And the sharp break, though, between chapter 4 and chapter 5, which, if, again, if you were here last week, you might uh, be able to bear that a little more, uh, is trying to emphasize that the book of Daniel is not a beautiful piece of liturgy, and it's not a beautiful history book. Because so far, things in Daniel have been very chronological. Why? Maybe it's so that all of us will know that this was said by Daniel, by the Spirit of God. It's to emphasize that point. And also teach us that, to raise the question of if there's an inconsistent story about forgiveness. For our God, we see him as merciful. And so maybe Belshazzar's treatment is unfair. Because remember, Nebuchadnezzar was warned, like, many times. And he failed many times to do what God wanted him to do. But he received forgiveness. Belshazzar did not. So maybe first we ask, was Belshazzar, was this his only warning? Was the writing on the wall the only chance he got? Because it wasn't much, right? I think that, or again, Nebuchadnezzar had been warned many times. And I think that we have to remember, as Abe discussed last week, that everyone in the kingdom knew that Nebuchadnezzar had been driven away. They knew the story of Daniel. They knew what was going on. And Belshazzar definitely knew. And yet he still did what he did. He still acted the way he did. He, Belshazzar had been forewarned. And he had known the history in his family. Perhaps this was just. Belshazzar really had no excuses for his purposeful sin. So, uh... Let's review a couple of concepts as well, uh, in addition to this. God's forgiveness is an undeserved gift. We all believe this. Um, we don't have time to look at it, but uh, Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16, tells the story of people who go out into the field, right? And it's on page 929 if you want to look at it. People go out in the field at different times. A guy who owns a field, he's hiring men. So some people come like 5 a.m., some people come at 10 a.m., he keeps going around to the street, hey, come work for me, I'll pay you. Come work for me, I'll pay you. So 5 a.m., 10 a.m., they all come at different times. Some people show up literally at the end of the day at like 4.45, and they're only working until 5, okay? So at like 6 p.m. or whatever, they all come to the guy, and, and, uh, and he's paying them, he's paying the people who worked last, he's paying them first, and he's paying them their money. And uh, the people who worked all day, they're like, oh, well, we're probably going to get paid more, right? Because we worked all day. And they get paid the same. And they start getting upset. Well, we worked longer than they did. And what does the, what does the man say? He says, hey, listen, it's, it's my choice. It's my gift to people. It's my payment. We agree. Did I not set a deal with you that you'd work all day? And they're like, yeah, yeah. He's like, well, then you have no right to be upset that I, why are you upset that I give more to another person? It's like uh, if we were to, like someone pays you for your parking ticket. You know, you're, you, you knew you shouldn't have sped or parked where you parked, and you absolutely deserve the ticket, right? This has happened, right? And are you going to be, like, crying and angry at the judge and being like, you know, really, it's not fair because so many people get away with it. Like, honestly, they can't catch everyone. And you know what? You did something wrong. You deserve to pay $30 or whatever it is. But if someone, like, steps out and pays for you or pays for someone else and doesn't pay for you, do you really have a right to be mad at them? Someone steps up and says, yeah, yeah, Kyle says, yeah, I'll pay for your ticket, Paul. We know Paul's going to have some tickets in the future. Just kidding. Um, he says, I'll pay for your ticket, Paul. And then Richard's like, well, Kyle, you didn't pay for my ticket. What he did was just something completely undeserved. 
God's mercy is available to all of us for our sin and redemption through Yeshua. And we know this. This is what we believe. But for our redemption in this life, we are absolutely at the mercy of God to provide us atonement and blessing. And honestly, we don't deserve it. Both like how our circumstances live out in this life and honestly, the grace that we've been provided through Yeshua. So a first action I want us to pause for a second from this sermon. And I want you to think of one way that God spared you this week. You know, close your eyes, take a second. Maybe you had a paper due. I know, that's me. And there was no way you were going to get that done. And God did it for you. Maybe you can recall an incident where you were in traffic and you nearly got into an accident. And somehow your brakes worked faster than you thought they could. You know? Or maybe it's your health. You just thought, you know, I can't believe I didn't get sick. Everyone in my office is sick except me. Take a second and just think of something. And now I want you to you know, quietly just thank God for protecting you. He didn't have to help. He doesn't have to help. But out of his mercy and grace, he chose to save us. And I think we should try to instill this kind of thanksgiving regularly in our day. So let's jump to the fate idea, and then we'll close out. Because perhaps, although, you know, God, you know, perhaps Belshazzar, it's more than Belshazzar should have known better. Okay? Perhaps it goes deeper than that. There is a time for God's judgment, and we are unable to predict it. As, I, as we talked about earlier, we never know when the stretch of our lives has been weighed out. We never know when it is our time. We also do not know the time or hour when Messiah will return and bring judgment on this earth. Mene and Tekel may not refer to Belshazzar at all. This is like one of my thoughts. But rather, maybe they refer to Nebuchadnezzar and his family and to the destruction due to the Babylonians. Rashi held this view as well. And maybe it would be helpful to recall the terror on Israel. Remember the horrible things done that the prophets refer to. Um, I had a couple passages, but I'm just going to read page 509, if you want to follow along. Page 509, Jeremiah 51, verses 34 through 35. Just two things about God affirming that he was going to judge Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has devoured me, crushed me, set me aside like an empty dish, swallowed me up like a dragon, filled his belly with my delicacies, rinsed me away. The one dwelling in Zion says, Let the violence done to me and my flesh be upon Babylon. Jerusalem says, My blood be on the Chaldeans. And God's response? God responds, Therefore, thus says Adonai, Yes, I will uphold your cause and take vengeance for you. Lamentations has a long, you know, we read this uh, on the Tishba'ah, the ninth of Av, we read the book of Lamentations, right? And, and we lament over the destruction of the temple. What the Babylonians did was awful. It might have been God's judgment, but it was awful, and they were due to pay for it. And Belshazzar was the tool for God's destruction. It was his time. And God bringing about changes of kingdoms so quickly, the kingdom literally changed hands in one night. Romans 9.17, I'll, I'll uh, read this briefly, kind of affirms this in that it says, I, uh, So then it does not depend on the one who wills or the one who strives, but on God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, so my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. He mentions Pharaoh here. 
Pharaoh, we, we believe, you know, he hardened his heart, right? He hardened his heart, hardened his heart. The text says this over and over again. And then suddenly it shifts. It shifts. And instead of Pharaoh hardening his heart, it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. At some point, Pharaoh's sin, what he was doing which was wrong, he was no longer in control. God was going to use him for his destruction. Belshazzar, in a similar sense, had heard his grandfather's story, and he heard the prophecy concerning his kingdom, and yet he still sinned. And thus he was destroyed and judged. So, I just the second action I want us to think about is what is something that maybe we have a stubborn heart about? Where, where do we have a, heart, a hard heart? Does God have something that he's written on the wall in your life for you to see regarding your own life? Is there some godly character trait that you are struggling with, that you know God wants you to work on? Take a second and think about this. I'll name a few. Trusting. Maybe we need to be more faithful. We need to be more true. We need to be more orderly, compassionate, gracious, honorable, or generous. Let's ask God today to forgive us for where we've lacked in these characters or these characteristics and to instill in us the desire to more move towards godly character. Uh, and with that, I'll pray, and then we'll go ahead and sing our final song. Father, I thank you so much that you have spared us so many times, and we don't deserve it, God, and we are, we are very grateful for what you've provided. And we ask that you will please instill in us, clarify for us, areas that we can be more compassionate, we can be more gracious and honorable people, Lord. I just ask that you'll please help us to make those improvements this week and make that decision this week. I ask this in Yeshua's name.